I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to uh, the Old Testament, to Exodus chapter 20. Uh, as most of you know, in case you don't, if you're a guest, uh, just so you do know, we're in a series uh, called It Starts With Ten, in which we're looking at the Ten Commandments. And uh, one of the things that we've learned uh, from the start, one of the things that's often lo- overlooked is that God gave these commandments to the Israelites uh, after they left Egypt. In other words, the people were rescued and set free by the grace and power of God, not by keeping directives. Uh, these were given uh, to the Israelites because freedom was a new experience. After 400 years of slavery, uh, the people found themselves on their own after three months, wandering around and wondering to themselves, how are we going to survive as a nation? How are we going to live in, in safe, sustainable community? And, and that's where the commandments come into play. God gives these to his people Uh, to help them understand how healthy human uh, life and community is supposed to work, how it's meant to be. And when they're all boiled down, uh, really the commandments are are all about relationships. Uh, The first four, and in case you missed any of them, you need to go online and listen, but the first four had to do with the people's relationship to God, uh, their creator, their rescuer, and the rest were about their relationship to each other as a family, as friends, as human beings living together in society. And Uh, That really gets expressed here in commandment number six. When God says to the people, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, uh, out of slavery. You shall not murder. Now, unfortunately, the topic of murder uh, is one that's uh, relevant both to our world and to our culture. Uh, Rarely a day goes by when we don't read about, hear about, or see on television Uh, News of a life prematurely uh, snuffed out. Video uh, clips, as we just saw a few seconds ago. Uh, This this summer around Chicago was particularly uh, brutal. Many of you probably followed the high-profile trial and ultimate conviction of Christopher Vaughn, who murdered his wife and three kids in cold blood in a van down near Joliet. Uh, On top of that disturbing uh, crime, violence in the city of Chicago is just out of control this year. There was one night in August, August 23rd, Uh, when uh, 25 people were shot in one evening. And uh, at this point in 2012, Chicago has the highest per capita murder rate in the nation, higher than New York City, higher than Los Angeles. Uh, not Not a great claim to fame. But let's be honest. I mean, to a certain degree, we've come to sort of expect and accept that violence is part of life. We just, we see it every day. Uh, In his classic uh, text entitled Amusing Ourselves to Death, the late media theorist and um, cultural critic Neil Postman wrote about how information technology and media exposure conditions us to uh, tolerate certain actions and attitudes uh, with violence being one of them. And Postman said this, he said, there's no more disturbing consequence of the electronic and graphic revolution than this, that the world as presented to us through television seems natural, not bizarre. He wrote that in 1985. Here we are 27 years later. Not only do we have television, but we have the Internet. We have YouTube, Vimeo, video phones. All those things make Postman's statement even more true. And because we've grown used to and even you might even say numb to hearing and seeing so much violence in our world around us, it's often not until something brutal happens in our own neighborhoods or in our own families that we we wake up and take seriously the repulsive nature of violence and specifically murder. When it hits close to home, we're like, this is nuts, this is crazy. It's inhuman, it's unthinkable, it's evil, to which God says, you're right, that's what I've been telling you. So here's the deal. I'm not going to try to convince you murder is real. You know it is. 
I'm not going to try to convince you it's wrong. I think we all agree on that. The question, the bigger question, at least for me, is this. Why is it wrong? To answer that, let's start by looking at this commandment and clarifying some basic definitions. Because God says to the people, he says, you shall not murder. Now, there are a number of Hebrew words for kill. but This word is unique. It's the term ratzach. It literally means to strike or dash to pieces. And then it came to mean, uh, later on, to slay someone, to kill someone deliberately, unjustly, out of rage or disdain. And so it's really important we note that God isn't commenting here on judicial execution or matters of war. This is an issue of individual morality. The command addresses murder, the deliberate or malicious or unjust taking of innocent human life. God says don't do it, which was something the Israelites probably needed to hear. Because think again of the cultural context. The people had just come out of about four centuries of slavery. And while they were uh, pretty well fed back in Egypt, because starving slaves don't produce much, um, it, was, it was not uncommon for them to be mistreated, beaten, whipped, even murdered at the hands of their Egyptian taskmasters. We know from Exodus chapter 1 that the Egyptians uh, issued decrees to uh, murder newborn infants, specifically male infants, uh, as a way to try and control slave populations. And so for generations after generation, you know, violence was a way of life for the Israelites. As slaves, murder was something they saw every day, and maybe they had become numb to it. But now God had set them free. They were, they were, they were his people. They were loved and liberated. No longer did they need to, to behave like slaves, nor should they treat each other as such with little regard for human life. God says, you shall not murder. Do not take innocent life. But again, the question is why? And you say, well, duh, right? I mean, come on. Murder is bad. And you're right, it's bad. And it's something, something deep inside all of us tells us it's bad. Something in our humanness cries out that it's bad. But why? Well, the answer to that is found not in the context of Israel in the ancient Near East, but in the context of creation. In Genesis 1 and 2, we're told that God created the universe and everything in it. And at the apex of his creative process, God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed in him, into him the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And not only did God, did God create this living, breathing human being, but God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So here, here's, my, here's my Ray K summary, okay? From the start, from the very start, from the dawn of creation, human life was and is a precious gift from God. And no matter who you are, how you look, where you're from, what you've done, where you're going, every single man, woman, student, child, every human being is a reflection of their creator. Unique in that we bear his image. We've been endowed with the ability to reason, to, to feel, to love. Uh, we carry a moral consciousness. We contemplate the past. We imagine the future. Uh, we're ingeniously creative and intensely relational. Uh, we have a sense of aesthetics, wonderment, and, and an, an appreciation for beauty. Uh, we're not only physical, emotional, rational beings, but we're also spiritual beings, immortal in nature. And these characteristics are all, uh, all a reflection of God in us. And therefore, human life is sacred. We have intrinsic value, worth, and dignity. Every single one of us. And so... And so when innocent life is taken, when murder occurs, it destroys and devalues the image of God. 
So understand, this doctrine of creation in the image of God isn't just some archaic religious creed that's irrelevant. Uh, It defines how we live in our world, how we exist. I mean, it's crucial to healthy human culture. It's crucial to our culture. Now think about it. What happens in a society or to a society that loses this idea of the image of God or the idea of God himself? I'll tell you what happens. Uh, Human life gets devalued and is seen no longer as sacred. I mean, consider our culture for a second. You know, many many today in, in secular science postulate that we humans are the result of an ambiguous Big Bang whereby the the universe spontaneously exploded into being and all that exists is simply a random accident. You and the people around you are no more than a highly evolved biological consequence of chance process. And while we are exceptionally uh, complex uh, as human beings, there's no significant or, or, or scientific basis to say that you or I have intrinsic value or dignity. Uh, famed British philosopher and atheist Bertrand Russell uh, wrote this. He said, Man is the product of causes which had no prevision of the end they were achieving, that his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, loves and beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocation of atoms. In other words, you're a meaningless accident. Uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. was an early 20th century uh, intellectual Supreme Court justice and a social Darwinist, and he said, Scientifically, I see no reason for attributing to a man a significance different in kind from that which belongs to a baboon or a grain of sand. And then more recently, well-known atheist philosopher Peter Singer of Princeton University said, Because people are human does not mean their lives are more valuable than animals. On the basis of evolution, there is no dividing line between animals and humans. The notion of the sanctity of life ought to be discarded as outdated, unscientific, and irrelevant to understanding problems in contemporary bioethics. And yet, ironically, ironically, as secular scientists and philosophers are saying that humans have no claim to intrinsic value, secular psychologists are saying the opposite. They're trying to convince their patients that they do have value, and they do have worth, and they do have dignity. So, which is it? That's the conundrum of secularism, of naturalism. And yet we all, you know, we all sense there's some greater meaning, there's some greater purpose to our existence. So here's, here's the point. Let's not underestimate the practical implications of this notion of the image of God. For example, it carries implications for self-esteem. To accept the atheistic premise that by pure accident, nothing produced everything, That non-life generated life, randomness formed order, chaos translated information, unconsciousness produced consciousness, non-reason produced reason, and so we hear brute animals without purpose, with no meaning, going nowhere. That is not a big self-esteem builder. You know what I mean? That's not a big confidence builder. However, if it's true that humanity was and is uniquely designed to reflect the image of a creator, then there is a profound an irreducible glory and significance about every single one of you. Indeed, every single human being on the planet. And therefore, the image of God carries implications for the way that we treat people. If we believe that every person bears God's image, then we should treat everybody with the highest degree of honor and respect, right? 
In the New Testament, James wrote the early church and he said, look, as Christians, we shouldn't be men and women who praise God one second and the next second curse human beings who've been made in God's likeness. That's messed up. That's twisted. Um, Well-known Christian thinker and author, former uh, the late uh, uh, and former uh, Oxford professor C.S. Lewis, in a, in a sermon that he gave entitled The Weight of Glory, put it this way once. He said, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. It is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. This doesn't mean we're to be perpetually solemn. We must play, but our merriment must be of the kind which exists between people who have from the outset taken each other seriously. No flippancy, superiority, or presumption. Translation, Lewis was saying, because of the image of God, every single person deserves to be treated with dignity, with respect, and with concern, compassion. Which then leads to uh, implications for human rights. I mean, tell me something, where, where did this idea come from? Where did this idea of, of how every person, regardless of age and race and national origin or class, has inalienable rights, where did that come from? Some suggest it's purely a Western idea. But if you trace the roots of Western thought back to the Greeks, back to Aristotle, the philosopher, uh, in two of his books, Politics, one on politics, one on ethics, uh, Aristotle said, look, some races are just too emotional and not smart enough to rule. Therefore, they are, they're born to be slaves. He actually put it this way. He wrote, is there anyone uh, intended by nature to be a slave? There's no difficulty in answering the question. Some should rule, others should be ruled. From the hour of birth, some are marked out for subjection, others for rule. And so that's what the Greeks and Romans believe. In the ancient world, you had, you had slavery, and you had, as a result, you had poverty. You had abortion. You had infanticide, you know, the killing and the murdering of infants. You had euthanasia, where the sick and the elderly were left out to uh, die to exposure. Um, all, all perfectly legal because the value of life was measured by capabilities or capacities. In fact, Peter Singer, the guy from Princeton, uh, and those who are in his camp, argue this very thing, that human rights are grounded in capacities. An individual deserves protection because they can reason, they can make moral choices, they can express preferences, and they can contribute to society. This is why some people argue that abortion is acceptable, because life in the womb lacks those capabilities, those capacities. The unborn can't make choices, they can't reason, they can't tell right from wrong, they can't live apart from the mother. If they don't have capacities, if they don't contribute, they don't have rights. But keep this in mind. Born infants don't have capacities either. They can't reason. They have no preferences yet. They can't make moral choices. Neither can the elderly who are struggling with senility, or neither can the severely mentally handicapped men or women in our, in our culture. And so you cannot protect the rights of any of those folks if rights are based solely on capacities. Some people get really mad at Peter Singer for saying these things. But look, at least Peter Singer is, is being intellectually honest and consistent with his belief system. He's saying, look, if you don't believe in God, therefore you don't believe in the image of God, what do you ground human rights on? It's got to be grounded on something. It has to be capacities. 
And so here's the harsh reality of that belief system. If you can't protect the unborn because they lack capacities, then you can't protect the newly born and you can't protect the mentally handicapped. You can't protect uh, the elderly. That is the logical, that is the logical conclusion. That is the logical outplay of naturalism. But understand, this idea of capacity isn't new to our culture. It was part of the Greco-Roman world. But in the earliest days of the Christian church, here's what happened. Jesus' followers believed in the image of God, not, not in just capacities. And so what they did is they went and they engaged the culture. And they became protectors of the innocent and the marginalized. They spoke out against first century abortion and infanticide uh, where you know, people would take unwanted infants, and usually it was girls uh, for the Greco-Romans. They'd take infant girls and would take them outside the city limits and they would just drop them off and like dump, you know, you know, dumps. Left out to the, in the elements to die. What did the Christians do? They went out and got those kids. And they loved them and they nursed them and they raised them. And they weren't just one or two issue people. They cared for the sick as well, and the elderly, and the poor. Uh, they visited prisoners in jail. They, they were champions of women. All because Christianity saw every single human life, no matter how young or how old, sick or healthy, wanted or unwanted, all life as being valuable and infinitely precious, made in the image of God. And that belief, that understanding... And that lifestyle that, that resulted changed Western culture. It changed, it changed human history forever. A guy named Brian Tierney is a, a retired professor of medieval history from Cornell University. In his textbook entitled The Idea of Natural Rights, the whole book is about demonstrating how our modern concept of human, uh, or what he calls natural rights, comes directly from the Scriptures, the Bible. And how it became part of European life and law by way of the Christian church. Now, what does all this mean? Well, it means that belief in the image of God reveres, values, and protects all innocent human life. If you don't believe in the image of God or God himself, then the value of life is easily diminished. And the circle of those who have rights and those who get protected becomes smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller based on individual capacities and, and contribution. And as a result, abortion, infanticide, euthanasia, suicide, perhaps even homicide someday will become acceptable alternatives. Some refer, refer to some of these as uh, civilized killings. Back in May of this year, maybe you heard this on the news, US, a U.S. federal judge named Michael Urbanski uh, made some big news when he suggested publicly that we reduce the Ten Commandments to six by getting rid of, rid of the first four. And I would suggest that Urbanski's vision was short-sighted because to, to reduce the commandments to the final six ignores the, the decalogues or the, the ten words, uh, the ten commandments. It, it, it ignores its comprehensive structure and foundation because once commandment number one is gone, all the rest become nothing more than suggestions. And I think that's pretty important when it comes to the sixth commandment, right? Because without God, human life loses its meaning, loses its uniqueness, and thus it loses its value. As Russian author Fyodor Dostoevsky famously wrote, if there is no God, then everything is permissible. Everything. And he was right. And so murder, the deliberate, malicious, unjust taking of innocent human life, 
is wrong because it, it devalues and destroys the image of God and those who bear it. So this week I was thinking more about that and I was wondering how, you know, how it would change us. I mean, what, what, what would Parkview be like if we began to take the image of God more seriously? And it seems to me it, we would become a pretty unusual community. I mean, we're pretty odd to begin with, right? I mean, look at me. But, uh, you know, we would become uniquely uh, uh, unusual because uh, we would reject and curse no one. But instead, we would care for and extend grace to everyone. Young, old, rich, poor, educated, uneducated, bright, simple, weak, marginalized. Even those who have in some way violated this commandment, even they would be offered grace because they themselves are made in the image of God. Now, some of us are thinking, okay, this is cool, I get it, nice job with the commandment. Let's move on. Let's go home because, you know, I've never murdered anybody. I don't have any plans to do it. The next few commands I'm a little nervous about, but uh, this, one I'm, this one I'm good to go on. And I'm with you. I'd like to stop too and go home. But there's one, there's one other thing we need to consider, and it's something Jesus said. You see, there were some religious people around Jesus who, who felt the same way. They felt that when it, comes to, when it came to the sixth commandment, they were good to go. In fact, many of the religious experts of the day uh, saw themselves as keepers of all the commandments. And so they stood in arrogant judgment of everybody else. And Jesus, Jesus wanted them to know, and, and know in certain terms, that murder occurs not only in ways that are obvious, but also in a way that's not so obvious. A more concealed type killing. A secret devaluing of human life in the image of God. A a murder that only God can see and judge. It's murder that takes place in the heart long before it becomes an act of the hands. Jesus put it this way. He said to them, you have heard it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry, and the word there means hate. He says anyone who is angry with or hates a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Now, is anger and hate ever okay? Sure. There are instances. I mean, being angry over or hating injustice or sin, evil, or the exploitation of of people is certainly acceptable, even righteous. But the anger Jesus was talking about uh, is is an unjust, deep-seated hate or or malice against a person. It refers to an inner desire to diminish somebody, to destroy them or their reputation, or as we, we sometimes say, to see them dead. Such anger and hate flows from prejudice, envy, greed, selfishness, and pride. And Jesus simply wanted everybody to know, and especially the religious people, that sin runs a lot deeper than just behavior. In the eyes of God, hate, hate in your heart for someone, is as much murder as violence against that person physically. Why? Because hate is where most murder begins. It's where it all starts. And if that's true, then who's guilty? Of murder, who's guilty of violating the sixth commandment? Well, you know, based on Jesus' teaching, I'd, I guess I'd have to say there are, there are probably a lot of murderers here this morning, right in this room. Sure, some of us can say with impunity, "Look, I've never actually killed anyone. I've never taken a life." We can say, "I, I don't endorse the taking of innocent life either." But can any, can any of us honestly say we've never been so angry at somebody that we've either wanted to to hurt them or to see them hurt? If you've never experienced that kind of anger, then you're a much better person than me. Either that or you're just lying. You're just kidding yourself. 
Because the truth is that anger, rage, greed, jealousy, envy, conceit, callousness, slander, they make murders, murderers of us all. And so commandment six is, is way more easily violated than most of us ever imagined and proves we all need God to forgive our murderous hearts. We all need his grace. You know, as I was reading through the paper each day this week, again, I was reminded again and again and again that we live in a pretty sick and broken world. And due to the sheer volume of sin and evil, our culture continues to be desensitized to it, to this violence, because there's just so much of it. And we're all, we're all getting so numb to it. And, and, but for me, I mean, there's something, there's something seriously wrong if we as God's people remain unaffected by the news of, of murder and the taking of innocent human life. There's something wrong when we experience and tolerate hate and malice in our hearts against other people. You know, it's time for, we, uh, for us in the church to open our eyes to reality and become more sensitive to the repulsive nature of hate and violence. Because you know what? God hasn't been desensitized. We human beings are as precious to Him now as the day He created us in His image. As image bearers, we are called to revere and honor and value life. And it's wrong for you or me or anyone to cheapen it by committing an act of murder, whether criminal, civilized, or concealed. If we do, we're guilty in the eyes of God. And sin deserves judgment. But here's the good news. Even though murder, in whatever form it takes, is a clear violation of God's commandment, Condemned by Jesus both as an outward act and inner attitude, even though God considers the taking of innocent life an offensive and detestable thing, He's willing to forgive. Whether it's, it's the action or the attitude, He's willing to forgive. How do we know that? Well, think about it. God had Moses deliver this directive to His people. Moses. A guy who years earlier, in an act of rage, took the life of another human being back in Egypt and then tried to cover it up. Moses himself was was guilty of murder. And so his relationship with God was based on grace and forgiveness. It had to be. And Moses certainly needed it. And he found it. Listen, as with all ten, commandment number six isn't just about what human beings should and shouldn't do. It's about what God will do. It's not just about the guilt of humanity, but the grace of God. God, who invites broken, sinful people, not into religion, but into relationship. And anyone, anyone, even a, even a, a runaway murderer, obviously, even a runaway murderer who's willing to humble themselves before the God who created all of us, can and will experience God's grace. Anyone, even you, even me. Let's pray. Our Father, we're, um, we're grateful this morning for your word to us because these commandments aren't simply about do's and don'ts. It's about how to live healthy human lives, how to live together in safe, sustainable community. It's about what is best and right for us as human beings. And as we think through these things, we recognize that um, uh, so often our culture these are violated. And even as we think of this issue of violence and hate and murder, uh, we see it all around us. 
as the image, your image in us gets devalued and destroyed so easily. And I pray that you would help us as your people not to become numb to it or not to, re- not to stay numb to it, but to recognize uh, how violence and hate and murder devalues and destroys those who've been created in your image, those people, those men and women you love, you care about. And so um, I pray, Lord, you'd give us the courage to look at our own lives um, and maybe courage enough to look at our own hearts and decide, is there someone that I have or I am hating? Who's someone who I, I want to see hurt or someone um, I want to see their reputation destroyed or something bad happened to them because I'm angry with them, upset with them. Um, I pray that you'd give us the courage to look uh, and see if that exists within us because selfishness and pride and anger and greed make, make murderers of us all. The truth is we all need your grace. We all need to experience what you offer to us in Jesus. And so I pray that you would pour your grace out upon us even now as we worship and sing to you in Jesus' name. Amen.